You can open up your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 22. Uh, We're going to be in the second half of this text uh, today, this chapter. We're going to try to finish uh, the end of this chapter. Before we get to this text and lead up to it, though, I just wanted to, like I've been trying to do weekly, uh, thank you for your generosity to our church family, uh, your offerings and gifts that you've made or been making, uh, even this morning, to to further the mission of our church. I'm so grateful for that, and the Lord is doing wonderful things through the congregation, uh, the people we have sent out to all corners of the world and the ministries that are happening here. So uh, if you'd like to make contributions, uh, you always can do that in the boxes at the back. You can do that online. Go to our church website. Uh, You can mail them in however uh, you see fit. But I want to say thank you and encourage your ongoing generosity in light of the generosity of God toward us. Deuteronomy 22, if, if, you, uh, ha, if you've never been with us before on a Sunday, you picked an interesting Sunday uh, to join us. This text uh, is one that has been, uh, I've not necessarily been dreading, uh, that would be a, a wrong thing to say, but uh, one that I have, um, it's been on my mind and heart as we've gotten closer to it because of the heaviness of it. Uh, it talks about uh, some things as we read it that you'll see, but uh, things that are sexual in nature. Uh, things that are difficult to read about, hear about. Uh, but it also, I think, can teach us about the good gift of marriage, the God's good design of marriage. And one of my highest privileges as a pastor is getting to officiate weddings. Uh, there's some downsides to being a pastor, which are not very many. Okay, let me start over. There we go. Here we go. Now you can hear me. Reset. All right. Uh, One of my privileges as a pastor is getting to officiate weddings. Uh, That's a real joy. I've gotten to do a few even recently. have a few on the horizon still. Uh, And each wedding that I do... uh, this will like be a spoiler alert to you if you ever attend one. I usually uh, have a short message from a verse in the book of Hebrews, a verse that's not super well known, uh, but it's from the book of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Uh, and it starts this way, and this is what I, I share from at those weddings. It, the author said, let marriage be held in honor among all. That's how the verse starts, and that's a worthy, uh, challenging command to us that all of us, whether we're married, unmarried, never will be married, whether we're divorced or whatever, that we're all to hold marriage in honor, Uh, and we'll see that in today's text. But there's a second part to that verse that I don't usually preach from somewhat for time constraints, but also uh, it may not be uh, the most apropos thing at a wedding ceremony, but that verse continues, and I wanted you to see how the author continues his thought in that verse. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That's probably not a text you would uh, fully uh, share from at a wedding ceremony, but both of those things are true. Uh, and they could stand alone from one another, but they're linked as well, that we should, we're commanded to hold marriage in honor, every single one of us. Uh, but there's also distortions of marriage. There's perversions of it. There's, there's ways that we undermine it in our behavior. And God calls us to not tolerate those things, to not be okay with them, but to let the marriage bed be undefiled and know that there's even judgment that comes for disregarding God's creation. So even in that text, and what we're going to see as we dive into Deuteronomy 22 today, we see two things. We see the sacredness of the marriage union, right? But we also see the seriousness of behavior that would undermine that. 
the sacredness of marriage and all that it entails, the marriage union, but also the seriousness of behavior that would undermine that. And so what we're going to read today is part of Deuteronomy, obviously. We've been going through this book of the Bible, which is really like a second law of retelling and a further explanation of the law that Moses, as he's getting ready to die, is giving to the Israelites as they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And what he's been doing the last several chapters is he's been speaking this to them, getting them ready for life in the land, as he's been slowly elaborating on the Ten Commandments themselves. And in this text that we're going to read today, he's really elaborating on the Seventh Commandment, which is, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, that's a simple statement, but in this text, we're going to see him unpack that, unfold that in a lot of different circumstances or scenarios that could arise. And I want to give a couple framing thoughts before I read this to make sure that we're in the right place, the right state of mind as we approach it. Uh, a couple, I don't know what word to use other than warnings uh, before I read it, and then a couple commitments. Uh, the first warning is this, and I kind of already alluded to this, is that this text does speak fairly um, directly about sexual matters. Uh, it talks about adultery, fornication, virginity, uh, rape even, things like that uh, that are in this text. And I, I want you to know that up front, and I want you to know that I'm aware, it's been on my mind and heart, that this could be a difficult text for many of us in the room to hear, uh, to hear read aloud, to hear preached on, maybe because of sin that we have committed, uh, but also sin that may have been committed against us. Uh, those things have been heavy on my mind and heart uh, as we get ready to read this text, but I also want you to know a couple commitments for me. One is to any parents in the room, myself included. I am cognizant that there are children in the room listening, and so uh, I, that is not lost on me. Uh, I'm mindful of that, but I, I, I do want to be faithful to preach what is in the text. I'm, I'm going to try to, to share it uh, as clearly as I can and not shrink back from what it does say, to not to not uh, sidestep it, not skirt it, and certainly not to be embarrassed by it. Uh, we should never be embarrassed by the word of God. And so to the kids in the room, there may be some things I say that you don't even know what in the world I'm talking about. That's okay. It may be coded on purpose uh, sometimes when I talk. Uh, but you can, uh, moms and dads, grandparents in the room, you can uh, use your discretion and following up with them later. But the, the last commitment I want to make before I read this is uh, that I, I want, as we approach this text, to make sure that we read it first in its original context, but then also not forget the broader context of Scripture. Uh, that this is not God's only word about this subject, that there is, there is truth about Christ and what he has done, that there's redemption, that there's forgiveness, that there is grace. And so I want this text to not be a source of condemnation. Maybe it will be a source of conviction, but I don't want it to be a source of condemnation or shame to you. I, I want God to use it. I, I've been praying that he would use it to point us to Jesus, uh, that we might know more of his grace, even as we understand more the seriousness of these types of sin. And so those are a few uh, caveats, warnings, commitments, but I want to read this text. I'm going to start at Deuteronomy chapter 22. I'm going to start at verse 13, and I'm going to read to the end of this chapter, uh, and then we'll walk back through and see what the Lord would have to say to us today through this text. So Deuteronomy 22, start at verse 13. Moses continued his speech by saying this. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. 
Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city and the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity, and yet this is evidence, or this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver, and give them to the father of the young woman, because he's brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst." But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, and seizes her, and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife, so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you as an aside to those of you who've been praying for me as I uh, try to, to preach this text. I very much appreciate that uh, even now. Uh, but what, what I want to, to preach as the summary of this text, uh, the, the main thing that I want to communicate through that I think Moses and God through Moses was communicating to the Israelites even of this day is very simply this, is to respect the sacredness of the marriage union. To respect the sacredness of the marriage union. Uh, and as an aside, I meant to say this too. This text, I know I've spent hours this week talking with even a bunch of you about this text, and it's prompted so many questions and challenges. Uh, there are all sorts of side streets that we could turn off on this text, questions that are legitimate, things that we think about, process that may be confusing to us. I am not going to be able to turn off on all these side streets, but I do want to encourage you if there's things that are perplexing to you or you have more questions than what I'm able to share today to, to process that with others. You can talk to me about it. You can talk to other brothers and sisters in the church about it, but I'm going to do my best to, to do justice to this text to make sense of it, to apply it to us. But the, the main point I want to get across is to respect the sacredness of the marriage union. And I want to start with this first big chunk, verses 13 through 21, because I think in that 
that paragraph, this, this broadest section of this section of Deuteronomy, we can see that the, the sacredness of the marriage union is respected in this way specifically, is purity before marriage. Uh, that, that is what is described here. That's what's stated as being important and valuable uh, to them was purity before marriage, so sexual purity before the wedding. Uh, a little bit of background to this paragraph, uh, but some of it may go without saying or be implied here, is that uh, the sexual purity, especially of a bride, but I would say of a groom as well, was extremely important in that day leading up to marriage. Uh, that it was highly valued. It was a, a supreme importance to them almost. And there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, one was just for, I trust, was for moral reasons. That, that there was a, an acknowledgement, a, a respect of the reality of God's design that he intended for sexuality to be experienced only in the covenant of marriage. That it was for a husband and wife and that seeking to, to do that prior to marriage was a, a moral compromise that, that, that they wanted to resist, that they wanted to, to press back against. But it was also important for even practical reasons uh, to, to be able to know obvious things like who the father of a child was. Uh, to be able, there was social dynamics at play in their society that uh, there was reputations at play. You can even see in this paragraph, reputations of the family of this young woman that were at stake. And so it was very important for them that there would be sexual purity proceeding, leading up to marriage. And what Moses imagines, and he has kind of these like cases that he imagines in this text. This first case that he imagines and, and puts before them as a hypothetical uh, is that there is a couple that is been betrothed, they've been engaged, and now they have come together uh, in marriage. They have consummated the marriage, if you want to say it that way. Uh, that's code for kids. Uh, they, they've consummated the marriage. Uh, and what he imagines that the groom, the now husband, comes with an accusation. He doesn't elaborate on why. He says he hates her. We don't know exactly what that means, but he makes this accusation, uh, even publicly, that he has not found evidence of virginity uh, when they were married. And I do not have time to get into all of what that meant or what that entailed, but we are told what they were to do, generally speaking, when that accusation comes forward. Uh, it was to be handled publicly and obje as objectively as possible. It wasn't just some private thing and purely subjective accusations. It was to, to be brought out to others, to uh, elders were, of the city were supposed to engage this subject and it was supposed to be dealt with because it had have the, the judgment of this, whether it's true or not, would have huge ramifications in that day for that young lady's family. Uh, and even for her, there, there was a much at stake in this accusation that this man was making. And the, what was to happen was that the, the parents of the now wife were to bring the evidence of her virginity. Again, I'm not going to give details of this. It's somewhat speculative because it's not directly stated in here. But it is a custom in a lot of ancient cultures and even some today that there were the sheets of the bed. I'll try to say this carefully. The sheets that would have been on the bed the night the, wedding, the marriage was consummated, uh, that those would be kept by the bride's parents. And that there would be a sign even on those sheets of blood that she had indeed been a virgin when they came to be married. And what that dad is supposed to bring when that accusation is made is that sheet to say, no, I have evidence. Like you're saying this, but I can objectively show you that this is not true, that, that you're making this thing up. 
And Moses imagines two hypothetical outcomes in this case. Uh, the first one would be that if the, that evidence is brought and it, it's proven that this brother is lying, he says that that man is to be punished, or your text may say that he is to be whipped, verse 18. The, the idea is that he's to be publicly disciplined. Later in Deuteronomy, Moses is going to be talk about whipping that would take place at times uh, publicly as a, a demonstration of judgment against this man. So he is to be whipped. He was to pay her father 100 shekels, which if you're like me, you have no concept of what that is. From what I read, that is a lot of money. That would have been roughly the equivalent of 10 years worth of wages, uh, 10 years worth of wages paid to her, her family. And then, note, he is forbidden from divorcing her, right? That would have been a significant part of this, is that, that even in the future, no matter what would happen in their lives, he was forbidden from divorcing her, and she was to be his wife. She had already become his wife, but she was to stay his wife, and he was not allowed, just because he wanted to, to dismiss her to get rid of her. There was this protective feature in there. That was option one. But the second option, if there was no evidence to be presented, and then the assumption is that, that there had been some sort of sexual impurity before marriage on behalf of this young woman, the second option is that she is to be taken to the doorway of her family's house and stoned to death. Like showing uh, what Moses is saying here, the outrageous thing, verse 21 that she had done in Israel uh, to show the severity of impurity prior to marriage. So those are the two things that could have happened that show us how much was at stake in their minds and in God's minds about sexual immorality, sexual impurity prior to marriage. But what relevance does this have for us? Like we don't do these things. We don't have these customs. We don't have these like trials out at city gates. We don't have stonings of people, things like that. But what relevance does this have for us? To, to read a text like this, I, I don't think God intended us to just move past it, to ignore it. What relevance does it have for us? I, I would suggest a few things to us before we move on to some of these other laws. One is I think it is vital as Christians in our day, in our culture, that we recapture the connection between marriage and sexual intimacy. Our, our culture has almost totally cut those off from one another, separated them from one another, where we think of them as almost wholly different, uh, of sexual intimacy and marriage. Uh, and that has started to even seep into the life of the church, I think, where we, where we have uh, subtly, I think, slowly become more and more tolerant, more and more, uh, we make more and more excuses, we make more and more, we even have expectations at times. Uh, that young people are going to be, or older people for that matter, are going to be intimately engaged with other people who aren't their husband and wife. That it is part of exploring, as part of testing, as part of learning. We, we have adopted some of those viewpoints subtly in our culture and in our churches even. And the stigma that would have gone with, uh, with this sort of, of uh, premarital sexual engagement has long since gone away in our culture. The stigma ha has gone. And I think even in how we speak, I had a professor say this to me, it's lodged in my mind one time. He, he talked about, and then he's written articles about this too, how even in the terminology that we use to describe sex outside of marriage or before marriage, uh, we, have, we have downplayed it. We call it premarital sex instead of fornication. 
like as if the problem is just timing, he said, not an actual like breaking of the covenant design of God. Uh, we, it, it, it downplays, it acts as if it's, it's not a significant issue, that it's just a, a bad matter of timing and just jump the gun, things like that, instead of viewing it as a disregard of God's command, as a disregard of God's design. And so I think we need desperately to recapture the connection between marriage and sexual intimacy. And what I am not suggesting, I'm not suggesting whatsoever that we resurrect stoning, that we resurrect shaming, that we resurrect uh, giving of red letters to wear, things like that, where we publicly embarrass people, where we try to shame people for this particular type of sin. But what I am saying is that we need, we have a responsibility as believers to be much more explicit, much more proactive in our teaching and discipling of people, to actually talk about this, to actually call people who are not married to abstinence, to call them to sexual restraint and purity, and to not just turn them over to their own devices and make excuses or make accommodations for themselves. We have a responsibility to disciple and to teach people to be sexually pure prior to and outside of marriage. And we must teach them though, this is so important, that sexual restraint prior to marriage, outside of marriage, is never to gain God's approval. Right? It is never to gain his approval. That is gained for us by Jesus' restraint. That is gained for us by Jesus' obedience. But a call to abstinence, a call to restraint, is a call to honor God's design. Not to gain his approval, but to honor his design. That he created uh, us in such a way where marriage and sexual expression were to be one and the same. We need, I think, to paint a positive picture of sexuality and, why, and try to explain in a healthy way why God has tied those things together. Why he has created us in such a way where sexuality is to be expressed and enjoyed in the context of marriage. That is for our good. There is wisdom in God's design of that because there is such a deep union. There's such an intimate connection that happens between human beings that that should only be enjoyed in a relationship of safety. Right? Not where there's a potential out for this other person. Where there's, uh, am I going to dissatisfy them soon and they're going to leave me? Sexualized to be enjoyed and expressed in the safety of the committed love of a marriage covenant. And so we need to recapture this connection as a couple other application points. I would say to parents in the room, myself included, who have children who are in the, these younger years of life where they're soon to enter into uh, these new dimensions of their life and, and being interested in others, uh, we have a vital role to play in teaching them and discipling them. Someone is teaching your kids about sexuality. Uh, whether you acknowledge it or not. Many people are teaching children and young people about sexuality and it's very tempting for us to back off of that and sort of just let them figure it out or to outsource the responsibility of teaching about sexuality to other people, uh, to the schools or to the youth pastors or to the church or to uh, whoever else we think would, would be fit to do so. But this text, even this paragraph, notice the important role of the parents. 
in this, right? Like they're not just hands off from this young woman or from this young man. They are involved in the process. They're involved through and through. And we have a vital role. I would say dads in particular. You see the dad featured prominently here. Dads, you have a particularly important role to make sure that you talk about sexuality with your children. Uh, to not skirt it, to not dance around it, to not avoid it because it's awkward or you don't know what to say. The fact that you don't know what to say doesn't mean other people don't. Like they know what they think and they will teach your kids and it's vital that you proactively construct a positive view of sexuality, that you seek to teach your children to connect that to marriage. And so parents, please do not shrink back from this. I want us even on our church uh, social media this week to share some links to tools and resources and and ideas of ways that you could uh, be invested in teaching your children about sexual purity prior to marriage. Uh, We'll share those even this week. Last point of application from this section and thinking about purity before marriage is I want to say a special word to my young brothers in the room who are dating or who are engaged but not yet married. I know there's some of you in the room. Because of how we don't have arranged marriages currently, at least I don't think there's any arranged marriages happening in our room, Uh, because of how we have dating and courtship and engagement, things like that, we have, for better or worse, functionally, we have outsourced the role of a father in this process and entrusted it to young men. Uh, this, this sense of like leadership and courting and, and trying to care for this young lady. Uh, you have been given in our culture, in our day, a lot more latitude, a lot more private time, a lot more uh, engagement with your girlfriend or with your fiance than would have ever been in cultures like this. And I just want to challenge and, and pastorally exhort the young men in our church to make sure that you are actually leading your girlfriend or fiance well in this domain. You should be the brake pedals, not her, right? Like you should be the one who is setting boundaries. You should be the one who is providing leadership and care for her rather than viewing uh, her as the one that's responsible to do that. You as a young man have a responsibility to, if you are ever going to be her husband, you have a responsibility to show honor and respect to her now, uh, to respect her dignity and her purity as a young woman now. And so I want to lovingly challenge you, uh, exhort you uh, toward restraint and to respect of the one that you are dating, the one that you are engaged to. And so God calls us to purity before marriage. That is one way that we can show that we see the sacredness of the marriage bond, of the marriage union. But the laws keep coming in this, right? And they're going to get complicated here uh, if that one wasn't enough. Uh, the, the, the next category I want to look at of how we can view, how we can regard the sacredness of marriage is going to be in verses 22 down through 27. And in those verses, I think what we see is that we can respect the sacredness of marriage by fidelity in marriage. Fidelity is just the word for like faithfulness. Like you actually are faithful sexually even to your spouse. So he mentions in these verses three different scenarios, three different categories. Uh, But the common thread in this section is sexual encounters of those who are either married or betrothed. Betrothal was like engagement on steroids, basically, where they're already talked about as husband and wife, even though they hadn't consummated the marriage yet. Uh, But the common thread with these is a sexual encounter of those who are either already married or already betrothed. And in each of them, you're going to see someone dies because of these things. 
Like they, these are serious cases that he's imagining, that he's talking about with them. And I'm not going to be able to tease out all the nuance of these, but I do want to explain briefly each of these scenarios and the judgments that Moses prescribes for them. Okay, so situation number one, or category number one, is going to be in verse 22. And so he's talking about there a man who is found lying with the wife of another man. This is very simply kind of a general statement of adultery, a general description of adultery, right? Where there is a man who is, is lying with the wife of another man. And what Moses, uh, th- I mean, this is obviously a consensual thing is implied here, uh, that, that they both uh, were willing and interested and committed to this act of adultery. And he says that the judgment rendered for that, Think of how different this is from our society today. The judgment rendered for that is that they are to die. He doesn't even give explicit nature of how to do it. He just says, they shall die. And says, you shall purge the evil from Israel. So that's kind of this umbrella category where he's saying any sort of adultery uh, is to be met with death. The second situation is verses 23 through 24. In this situation, uh, he's describing a a bit more of a specific arrangement, a a bit more of a specific, narrow situation. So note he talks about a betrothed virgin. So that means it's that like super engagement, right? Like she's essentially become the wife of another man. She's betrothed to him, but they've not yet consummated this marriage. And what is described here is that a man meets her in the city and lies with her. And so the, what the situation is imagining here, I would, I would argue what's being described in those two verses is another consensual act. It, it, it's a lady who's engaged to one man, essentially functionally his wife, but who is lying with a different man, uh, that, that, that they're sexually engaged. And I, I would say that it's consensual because, the, noticeably because of the absence of the language of him seizing her. That's going to appear in the next two scenarios, this language of him seizing her, almost like forcing himself upon her. That language is not used here, right? And there's this note of a lack of a cry for help. He's imagining a really specific situation where they're in the city, a bunch of people are around, but somehow uh, nobody hears her, right? That's not the only piece of evidence I don't think they would have used to say, hey, this was consensual on her part, but it would have been a small part of the puzzle, that no one heard you crying for help. So the assumption is that this was a consensual act. And the judgment for them in that circumstance, again, is death. And he specifically says that they are to be stoned, right? They shall stone them to death with stones at the gate of that city. Third situation, these are are heavy. This gets even heavier. Verses 25 through 27 are describing a situation that is somewhat similar. Again, it's a young woman who is betrothed. Right? She, she's not yet uh, fully the wife of this other man. Uh, but it's, it's described that this man meets her, but this is out in the country. And then note that language that he seizes her and lies with her. And that, that those pieces of data make us see, and even the judgment that comes with it, that this was not a consensual sexual encounter. That this was something where this, this man uh, takes advantage of her, where he even rapes her. 
Like that, that is what is going on. And it's done out of the sight of others. He even compares it to attacking and murdering his neighbor, which helps you know this is a severe assault against this woman. This is something that would have been grievous, maybe something that was even calculated given the place and which it, the location in which it took place. And what the judgment is in this case uh, is different. It's that that assailant, that that young man is to be put to death, but not the young woman, not the survivor. Presumably, she would have been cared for by the man she was betrothed to. Uh, he would have had a responsibility to, to care for her, to, to continue to take her as his wife. Uh, and there's going to be more in just a few minutes on the assault that comes in verse 28, which I think is the hardest part of today's text. Uh, but I, I think in these verses, we do see this emphasis on fidelity within marriage. When somebody's already married, when, they're, when they have been bound together with a husband or wife, the only place they are to have sexual encounter, expression, is with their husband or wife, not with anyone else, whether consensual or not. Uh, that sexual union is reserved for marriage. And I, I want to think what, again, we don't do these things. We don't stone people. We don't uh, bring people out to city gates. We don't do these things as church or even some of these things we don't do even in our society with things like adultery. But I want to think what relevance this has for us. What, what do we do with texts like this? How should they land upon us? Uh, the first thing is, I, I think, this is the understatement of understatement, is that we should realize how serious adultery is. Like, we, if we have trivialized premarital sex or fornication, we've also trivialized adultery in our society where we have become much more tolerant of it. We've become, there are times even in how stories are told in our society where we find ourselves rooting for people to find joy and happiness with someone who's other than their husband or wife. Right, because they have a deadbeat husband or they have a guy who just neglects them. We, our culture has gotten to a point not where we just tolerate adultery, but where we even celebrate it at times. Where we view it as a good gift of God sometimes. I've heard people say that. Like this is God's, this person, this other person is like a gift of God to me. And I will tell you, he or she is not. Like they are not a gift from God. Marriage is to present a picture to us of the relationship of Jesus and his bride, the church. Like that, that permanent, steady union. Uh, marriage is to present a picture of that, of unmixed uh, loyalty and permanency of a bond. And when we engage in adulterous acts, we are ruining that picture for our spouse and for any others who are aware of it. We need to realize through texts like this and the judgment that came for them how serious adultery really is. But secondly, like we need to, and I pastorally want to encourage you to, to think on this, is we need to recognize when there are temptations or compromises in our own life in this territory. Uh, oftentimes we think that so long as I am not lying with another person, that I'm okay. Like the, that I can almost like have free reign of engagement with other people short of that. That was the mindset in Jesus' day. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, read what he said about sexuality. He said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But he says, but I tell you, anyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Like we must have higher standards 
for ourselves than merely actually physically lying with a person who's not our husband or wife. We, we should be cognizant of the way that we speak to or about people. Like, do we get more excited to see so-and-so at work than we are to see our husband or wife? Do we, what, are, do we find ourselves more intrigued by this person and more allured to them than to our husband or wife? What do I imagine about that person? What, what do I think about them? Uh, Christ taught us to take those things seriously. And as we recognize small compromises or our hearts uh, going after someone who's not our husband or wife, we need to put a stop to that. We need to take off ramps as quick as possible to confess that, to turn from that, and to not indulge it. The, the Proverbs speak of, of how we can have fire close to our chest and think we're not going to get burned. We are fools if we think that we can intimately engage with people and even start to to romantically engage with other people who are not our spouse and think that there is not damage that's going to happen to us and to them and to our spouse Uh, we need to be cognizant of those temptations and when we start to find uh, fulfillment or happiness in those people and not in our spouse uh, the Lord would want us to, to never buy into those lies, never buy into that, that uh, desire, that, that temptation to run after someone else. And the last thing application-wise on this is that if there has been sin in your life in this domain, even in the past, or if there is sin happening now in the present, or there is a relationship that you have, there are compromises that you have made that you are making, I would challenge you and lovingly call you to repent of that, to confess that to the Lord and to confess that to others. Uh, Note in these verses, like the start of verse 22 talks about how a man is found lying with the wife of another person. I think often we are hesitant to confess things till it is found. Like till we are found out, till we're discovered by other people. What I would challenge you today, if there is this type of adulterous sin in your life, is to not wait for others to find it. Like be the one who has the courage and the humility to say, this is wrong, this is broken, this is devastating to my husband and wife. I need to confess this. I need to talk to the Lord about this. I need to have my brothers or sisters know about this because freedom will not come from concealing this. Like, freedom will come from confessing it. It it will come from acknowledging it and getting it into the open. And it will be more painful than you can probably even imagine. Uh, There there will be consequences. There will be difficulty. There will be strain that comes on relationships because of these things. But there will be grace, too. There will be more grace for you in that moment. And God can and will. I've seen him do it in people in our church who have confessed these very things i've seen the pain of it and the sorrow of it and the hurt on the wife's face and the the tears in her eyes but i've also seen god work healing and restoration i've seen it in my extended family where there's confession of these very sins and it plunges us into pain and difficulty and brokenness but god can put things back together god can heal what is broken and so I, i would lovingly humbly call you to repent of these things, to confess them, to have them be out in the open. And thinking of this subject of adultery, my mind could not help but go to John chapter 8, the beginning verses of John chapter 8, which is when Jesus uh, is teaching and these other leaders bring out this woman who was caught in adultery. 
with another man. And they, they are, they, what happens is they come to Jesus and they say, in the law, Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And they're trying to, to see, even based on today's text, like is Jesus actually going to see the severity of her sin? Like is he going to be willing to have us stone this woman? And then Jesus replies to them, there's this famous line that he says, you could probably even recite it in your own mind. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then it says that slowly they all leave. It says it starts with the oldest, which shows wisdom on their part. Uh, that they leave, they realize they have no legs to stand on to condemn this woman, that they are guilty even themselves. And it says that after they leave, Jesus, I, I love this, it says that Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And then it says that Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And Jesus is speaking to this woman not because he downplayed the seriousness of her adultery. He knew it. Like he, he knew the law. He knew the, the penalty for these things. He knew the severity of adultery, the very act she had just been caught in. And when he says, the one who is without sin, let him throw the first stone, guess who actually would fulfill that requirement? Him, Right? Like he had not sinned. He hadn't lusted after women. He certainly hadn't had an adulterous relationship with anyone. There was a person who would fit that bill, that could throw a stone, that could righteously condemn and judge her, and it was him. And the reason he didn't wasn't because he thought adultery was no big thing. It wasn't because he thought, oh, she just made a mistake, you know, no big deal. It was because he knew he would die on the cross for it. Right? Like he knew, you are guilty, sister. Like you have sinned against your husband. And he didn't explain this all to her, but he knew it was coming. He knew, I'm going to take that on me. Like, and instead of throwing stones at you, I'm going to receive them in your place. Like instead of putting you to death, I'm going to be put to death for you. And that is gloriously good news to any and all of us in the room who may have had adulterous relationships, who may be in them right now, is that there is mercy available, grace available to you through the person of Jesus. And it's not because your sin's no big deal, it's because Christ has died for it. And you can appeal to him for mercy and forgiveness, and it will be painful to confess it, but there will be grace for you if you turn to him in brokenness and in faith. Amen? He does not cast stones. He has bore them for us. So we need to have uh, fidelity in marriage. The last thing from verses 28 through 30, I want to show us how we can see and respect the sacredness of marriage in the, what I would call the security of marriage. And I'm going to talk about this. That it kind of comes in a surprising way, maybe even a shocking way to think about the security that marriage can offer us because what's described is anything but secure at the beginning. I want to mostly talk about verses 28 and 29, but a quick note on verse 30. Uh, this is just a doozy of a verse to have right at the end of this heavy chapter. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he doesn't uncover his father's nakedness. I don't have time to explain much about that other than it may have not been 
or may have been a somewhat common experience for an older man to have taken a younger wife in his old age, and then when he passes away, that that wife may even be of similar age to his sons. Um, there may have been this temptation for her, or for him to just assume or presume upon that she's going to become his wife. I think that's the type of situation he's imagining there. I don't have time to get into that. But 28 and 29, these are heavy, heavy verses. Because if, if verse 30 maybe is like confusing or kind of mysterious to us, I think verses 28 through 29 may be shocking to us. It may, it may uh, be jolting to us. Because I, I want you to think back to the, the first scenario we imagined today uh, that, that Moses described in that first paragraph. I think maybe even some of the men may have read past this more than the ladies in the church. But did you know back in verse 19 this statement when that guy had said these lies about her it says and she shall be his wife and he may not divorce her all his days that wouldn't be an encouraging a comforting thing necessarily for her right to think oh great this guy gets to continue to be my husband I get to continue to be his wife that would have been difficult to remain his wife right to that guy this is imagining a scenario that I think would be 10 times, 100 times even harder for this lady to be or become the wife of this man. And I, I, if I'm understanding this text correct, and I have wrestled with this a lot, I don't know how to read this text other than this being a rape or a sexual assault. Like He uses that language of him seizing her, right? But in verse 28, but the difference is she is not betrothed. She, she's not yet linked to a husband or a potential husband, right? And, but she is seized. He lies with her. They are found. And then what presumably at least could happen, potentially could happen, is that they become now husband and wife, right? That, I don't know how else you read that text. It, it says then, verse 29, Then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. We would expect, based on the verses that had come before this, would we not expect this brother is put to death for this? Right? Like, that's what I would have expected if I was writing this, is that this guy is put to death. Uh, that that is the consequence for it. But rather than that, there is this potential of him becoming her husband, of him becoming the one who was to care for her and protect her and look after her the rest of her life. And the reason I say that he could potentially do so is I want to refer you back to one other text that I am thankful is in the scriptures that would have preceded this, that the hearers of this would have known. Because remember I said Deuteronomy is the second law. It's like the elaborating on the law that God had given back at Mount Sinai. If you actually go back to what God had said at Mount Sinai, if you go back to Exodus 22, Moses had described this very circumstance. And he said this in Exodus 22, verses 16 through 17. See if this doesn't sound like the same type of situation. He said, If a man seduces a virgin who's not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. That sounds very similar to Deuteronomy, right? But then there's this caveat. It says, if her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price 
for virgins. And so what had been stated originally back at Mount Sinai would have still been in effect. Deuteronomy's not undermining that is that the father of this young woman would have had the ultimate say about this in their society. He would have been the one who got to determine, yes, we will proceed forward with them becoming husband and wife, or no, we will not. I utterly refuse that arrangement. He could have done that on behalf of his daughter. So that is a helpful text to explain that there's at least possibilities of what would take place. But there still is the possibility of them being husband and wife, isn't there? That's explicit in Deuteronomy chapter 22. And if, if the father consents to that, what would happen, Moses says, is that the, the young man would pay 50 shekels, which still would be a huge sum of money. They would become married, but again you see that he will not be allowed to divorce her all his days. That's the end of verse 29. There's this, this prohibition of him ever being able to divorce her. I don't have time to get into all this, but the thought should cross our mind. Why on earth would a father ever consider that? Like, why would he allow that? Why would he do that? just want to briefly, and this does not do justice to the complexity of this, but consider the situation that his daughter is in now. Uh, we can't just imagine hypotheticals. Consider the situation that she is in now. And that society that we said so values virginity uh, of a young woman, it would become very unlikely for her to ever become the wife of a young man in that society, right? That, that, that for a young man to, and his family to, to agree to arrangement for him to become her husband, some other guy than this one. And, and another detail is she could very well be pregnant right? She could have a child now. And in the, this society and structure, the way that, that you would be cared for was through the provision of the father, the provision presumably of the one who's also husband. And what I think we can see even in the hypotheticals of this arrangement, although it's counterintuitive to us, is that there is a protective feature to marriage. Like even when there's brokenness and vileness, that may precede it. There is a, a security. There's a protective feature of marriage. We tend to think of marriage purely in terms of romance and like self-fulfillment, things like that. Those aren't wrong things. Like those are things that could be good pieces of marriage. They thought of marriage more as a sense of security, as a sense of protection that could be provided for a wife, that could be provided for children. And the only thing I could think of that would compel a father to allow this would be that he would have some sort of confidence, although it's hard for me to imagine, that this young man could change into a one who would become respectable, who would actually look after her, who would actually care for her, who would actually uh, protect her and care for her even after he, as the dad, is gone. And so he would have had some consolation in the fact that this young man will not be allowed to divorce her all his days. Uh, that is the only thing I could think that would compel him to allow this, is that he sees something of the security in marriage that I think is lost upon us. I wish I could say much more about that text and the situation. I'd be glad to talk to, to people about it. A couple of things real briefly, application-wise from this. This should be the most obvious thing and go without saying, but I want to say is young men never, ever, ever force yourself upon a young woman. 
That is not your prerogative. That is not your right. I don't care how strongly you feel things. Never, ever do that. This text does not compel you to do that because you may get some good out of it. That is nonsense. Like This is showing how evil it is, not how good it is. Do not take advantage of anyone sexually, anyways. But if things have happened in your past, I would encourage you to take responsibility for the actions that you have taken, to, to seek to care for the, if there's children you've fathered, if there's harm that you have inflicted, you have a responsibility to try to care for them, to try to look after them, to try to, to help bring healing where you brought brokenness, to help bring restoration uh, where you have splintered things. That is a, a responsibility that you have for those who are the survivors of abuse like this, assault like this, I do not have sufficient words to speak to you. Like, I, I, my heart is broken a lot this week thinking about this. I want you to know, though, like when you have experienced the hurt and the mistreatment and the, the just discarding of, of your value, I want you to know, even when that is absent from others, that you have the Lord's compassion that he sees you, that he is aware of you, that you have no less dignity uh, in his sight because of things that have been done to you or because of what others have attributed to you. And I want you to see in this text his commitment to care for you, his commitment to look out for you and to not just leave you to, to suffer the, the consequences of things that have been done to you. But I want you to also know our commitment as a church to care for you, to, to be what uh, this person should have been to you, to, to, to care for you, to help you, to protect you, to look after you. That is a role that the church can collectively take up with you and for you, is to show you the type of secure love that you weren't shown by that brother. And for those who are married, a quick word of application. I, I have appreciated in this text, and even this strange part of it, I've appreciated, again, the security that marriage provides uh, I think there, there is something that is lost in us where we just think of it as pure bliss and romance and all these sorts of things. Texts like this help us see that there is value in marriage just in the permanency of it and the security, the constancy of it. The till death do us part is a real thing that we shouldn't take lightly, that God has given you a husband or wife to be with you through thick and thin, to be with you through trial, uh, to be with you through difficulty. There is security that comes. So we are to respect the sacredness of marriage. All of us are. But more than that, I don't, I don't want us to just think of marriage as an end in of itself. Marriage is supposed to point us beyond itself, isn't it? Uh, to the better relationship of Jesus and the church. Uh, where uh, there is no offense from him to us. It was us to him. <laughs> Uh, but he has established oneness with us. He has, he has died to bring us back to him, to reconcile us to him. I grew up in maybe the high age of what people call purity culture. I've seen it get critiqued and raked over the coals uh, in recent days uh, because of things that were done of like having purity rings and true love weights and all these things. And people think that there was too heavy of an emphasis on emphasizing virginity and things like that. I think there may be points to those things, but those things aside, as we try to think of what should motivate us towards godliness, towards restraint sexually, we should not be looking at external things that like purity culture would have given us, like purity rings or pledge cards, right? Those don't motivate you. Like, 
but ultimately neither will wedding rings, right? Or marriage licenses. Laws don't compel us to obedience, right? Love compels us to obedience. Like if you are just wanting laws to accumulate more and more laws, like don't do this with your girlfriend, don't do this with your coworker, those things will not compel you to actually obey. What we look to is not purity rings or pledge cards or wedding rings or marriage licenses. What we look to is the cross of Jesus for our motivation to actually obey in this realm of sexuality. Because at the cross, what we see, I'll close with this, what we see at the cross is not a sugarcoating of our sin, not a downplaying of it. We see the vileness of it. Like we see that my sin, your sin deserves that. My sin, your sin deserves the wrath of God. But what we also see at the cross is the one who could cast a stone at us received it in our place. Like that he has suffered the judgment that should be coming down upon us. And what we see at the cross, and Paul, the Apostle Paul emphasizes this, is what we see is that we have been bought at a price. Like we belong to him now. He has become our husband. He is the one uh, that we belong to. We are bound to him. And that, looking at the cross, is what will compel us to respect the sacredness of marriage and to follow suit in how we live. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. I want to pray for us. We'll sing a song together, and then we'll close. Father in heaven, thank you for your aid. Uh, Thank you for giving us these words. We know that all scripture is breathed out by you that all of it is profitable for us. God, we pray that as we come to these texts that, that are hard, that are difficult, that confront us, that make us relive things, God, we pray that we wouldn't shrink back from those things, but that we would see them as a gift from you to point us to Jesus, to help us acknowledge our sin, to confess it, but to know that it has been paid for, and to know that you are near to us in our sin, and that you are near to us when we have been sinned against. So we pray, even as we sing now, that you be honored by the, the words of our mouth and the attitudes of our heart. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.